Amen and uh, good morning. Um, I am not Mike McDaniel, the pastor of Grace Point Church. You can say my name is Brett Ferguson. I'm um, thankful to be here with you guys today. This is my church. My wife and I and our family, we go to church here. Um, and Mike is uh, out of town this weekend, and so he asked me if I could fill in for him and continue on our study of um, the book of Malachi. So if you have your Bibles with you in whatever form you carry that, you might want to open up to the book of Malachi chapter 1. And for those of you using a paper version of this, it's going to be in the back of the Old Testament, like right before the book of Matthew. Um, and what we've been talking about, and as we go through the book of Malachi, are mistakes. Because essentially what Malachi is doing is he's telling this people, the children of Israel, the Jewish people, here's the mistakes that you are making as you walk with God. And so we're going to continue on today, and we're going to look at actually what I think is the ultimate mistake that all of us can make, do make, will make. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is the mistake of living a life of drudgery. Now, um, before we get into this, um, I want to talk about a couple of different kinds of mistakes that you can make in your life. And the first one is just a mistake of ignorance. Ideally, you want to compress these mistakes into the decade between like 15 and 25. Um, and my dad's phrase about these kinds of mistakes were um, growing up where you can't know what you don't know. There's some things in life you just got to kind of figure out as you bump your head and move along, right? Those are mistakes that hopefully if you do them in the right place in the right time, you learn from them and you move on. There are other mistakes in life that for lack of a more eloquent term, we'll just call really stupid mistakes. Um, mistakes that you all, we all, I know better than to do. And some of the um, products in your house that are floating around no doubt carry with them a history of people who have made these stupid mistakes and the lawsuits that probably followed. Um, one, one of the items was a, uh, that I, I was kind of looking at around the house is your hair dryer um, actually comes with a warning label that says do not use while sleeping. That would be a dumb mistake, right? And I live with um, four women, and most of them are young now, but I'm sure in a few years I will see girls using hair dryer. I don't, I don't do this. Um, the next one is for Apple fans that think you're so smart, your iPod actually came with a warning that said, do not eat your iPod shuffle. These are things that you shouldn't have to be told, but apparently you do. Um, it's warming up outside. I use a window shade because I hate getting in the hot steering wheel in the car here. You cannot drive with that in the windshield. And then last, um, and this is probably my favorite, how many of you have a Dremel tool of some sort at your house? Do not try to use, that it was not intended to be a dental drill. <laughs> or in human or veterinary medical applications. So if you need a new filling or a spleen removed, your first idea should not be, I have just the tool for this. And on the outside saying something like, hey, guess what? Don't live a life of drudgery looks almost as dumb as some of these labels. You're like, yeah, that's a really good idea. Do I need to sit here for the next 30 minutes to hear you tell me not to do that? I shouldn't need a warning for that. But I think what we actually find out as we look at these people's lives and our own lives is that even though we know that we don't want to live a life of drudgery, Somehow, we find ourselves so easily falling into that life of drudgery all the time. And so today, hopefully, we can kind of give a little test of our own lives and see if we're living out of a love relationship with God or we're living out of some religious drudgery. Now, before we read the text, one last thing I have to say, two disclaimers. 
Number one is a disclaimer for Mike. Do you have the slide of Mike up there? Um, because I just want to say that the verses we're about to read are um, probably some of the most challenging, difficult verses in the entire Bible. And um, Mike picked a, an interesting week to be out of town on, um, quote, official church business. Are you taking a picture of this, Lori, to send to him? Okay, so... The question I have for Mike is, like, are you CrossFit tough guy, you big chicken, and just uh, didn't want to address these verses, because these, these are not easy verses to understand. The second thing I want to say is, look, you can choose to read these verses in one of two ways this morning. You can look at these verses and feel like there's some kind of harsh, capricious, angry, mean God who's behind them. Or we can read these verses with the understanding that the God who authored them is the God who sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. And at the core of who he is, is a God who initiates loving relationships with his people. And when you read these verses that way, when you choose to read them with that background in mind, they mean something completely different than if you choose the other way. All right, so we can have that mindset as we jump into God's word this morning. Here we go, Malachi chapter 1. Verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And then God answers, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. I have hated Esau, and I've made his mountains a, des a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. And though Edom, Edom is a country now, it's actually a country that is made by all of Esau's descendants. So now he's saying, he's still talking about Esau's family, his descendants. Edom says, we've been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear it down, and men will call them the wicked territory and people toward whom the Lord is indignant for forever." Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. We have to start with this today, kind of this guiding principle, this fundamental belief, this line in the sand, and that is this. What God really wants is to live in a love relationship with his people. More than anything else, from the beginning of the book to the end of this book, from the beginning of your life to the end of your life, from your first cry to that final breath, what God is doing is trying to pursue a love relationship with you. And he was trying to pursue a love relationship with these people that Malachi was talking to, but they came to a point where they basically said to God, God says, I've loved you. And they say back to God, how? How have you loved us? And I think it's a worthy question we should all ask. We should, we should all test ourselves today and say, how would you answer that question in your own life? How would you describe God's love for you? Is your life and your family in such shambles that you feel maybe skeptical about God's love the way these people did? Do you want to say inside your life, God, how have you loved me? And I wish I could um, get a better idea of the tone of this conversation because this could really go one of two ways. On one hand, and it would be understandable if this was one of those honest moments between God and his people where he's saying, I love you, and they're saying, but how? We can't see it, we can't feel it, we can't know it. These people have been through a very rough time. So we're going to do, um, for the next few minutes, like a thousand-year history lesson along the way. 
Um, and so just stay with, stick with me through this. But basically, here's what happened. These people had been in exile. They had been in captivity in the country of Babylon for 70 years. And about 100 years before Malachi, they finally got out of this slavery and came back to the promised land that Abraham had told them. And when they got back there, the temple was destroyed. The whole land was just left in ruins. And so they began to build it back up. And they actually rebuilt the temple that Solomon had built. Although it wasn't quite as good as it was when Solomon built it. They rebuilt this temple and they began to rebuild the land. And so for 100 years after they got out of exile, they're kind of going through this this continuous cycle, which is really the cycle that they've been in through the whole Old Testament of God would send someone to tell them, I love you, you should love me, and they would love God for a little bit, and then they would go back to just doing whatever they did when they didn't love God, and then God would send another prophet and say, I love you, you should love me, and they would reconnect with God, and then they would fall away, and this, this, on and on and on it goes, this cycle before Malachi comes, and it's easy to see how along the way in this hundred-year period where they could really just kind of get to where they honestly questioned, wait, is we were supposed to be blessed. That was the promise that had been given to Abraham. And it doesn't feel like we're very blessed. We got this kind of, you know, shoddy temple over here, and the land's not the way it should be. We, we're having trouble reestablishing ourselves. Maybe God doesn't love us. So that's one kind of tone. And I just want to say that I think for all of us, we will come to, you will come to, if you haven't already, a place and a time in your life where I think you honestly look at God and you say, I'm looking at my life and I'm looking at you and I'm wondering, do you really love me? And I can remember that moment with clarity in my life, um, in my, our apartment, it wasn't long after Rachel and I were married in Denver and um, my dad had been killed in a car wreck and some things like much like these people like life just wasn't what I thought it was going to be at that moment and I remember just for the first time really honestly feeling like wait a second does God really love me or does he really care about me that's one way this conversation could go however I think the conversation actually is more like um maybe a spoiled child um, a couple weeks ago, we were riding around in the car on a Saturday, and one of my lovely daughters asked me for something, and I can't remember what it was, probably like a unicorn or a pony or something like that, and I was like, no, no. And my child's um, mature response was to burst into tears, like, you just never want us to be happy. And I'm like, I, I lost it. <laughs> none of you would do this. None of your kids would probably ever say something like that about you. But I just had this moment where I just freaked out. I was like, you're right. We don't want you to be happy. That's why, we, that's why all the money we have, we spend on ourselves. We don't buy you shoes, clothes, take you on vacations, have birthday parties. That's why your mom wakes up every morning, packs your lunch for school, drives you to school, picks you up from school, spends her whole life buying you food, washing your clothes, taking you places that you want to go. It's why I wake up every Monday morning and go try to sell something to Walmart. Have you ever tried to sell something to Walmart? <laughs> it's because we don't want you to be happy. And I think maybe that's a little bit more of the kind of answer that God's giving them, is they're being this petulant child, and what God's saying to them is, no, 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 look at everything that I've done for you. So let's read it together. Back to Malachi 1. I've loved Jacob and I've hated Esau. I'm going to stop and say, we need to understand the word hate in this comparison. This sounds very familiar to a verse that Jesus spoke, or this language where Jesus is telling his disciples 
unless you hate your mother, father, sister, brothers, you can't come be my disciple, right? And he's not saying I actually, you actually have to hate your family. He's saying that unless your love for me pales in comparison so much that everything else looks like something else, you're not my disciple. And that's what Jesus is saying is, I've loved Jacob so much, so much I've loved him, that everything else looks like hate. I've given him such special favor. And this is the story of Jacob and Esau. So let's do the history lesson. Genesis chapter 12. God calls out Abraham. The world is in shambles. People are not following God. God calls out Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a special person. A special nation is going to come out of you. And I'm going to bless you. And those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And so God promised Abraham he was going to give you a family and people. And through that family, what God wanted to do through this relationship was bless everyone in the world. It's an amazing gift he gives Abraham. Abraham has a son. Abraham's son's name is Isaac. Are you following this? All right. You got to draw the line here. Isaac has two sons. They're twins, and they're named Jacob and Esau. They were, they were um, actually, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, um, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was so uncomfortable in pregnancy that she was like, what is going on inside me? And the Lord said that while these two babies were inside her womb, that they were fighting. And he said, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. One people should be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Esau was born first. He was hairy, like red hair. He was like the red-headed stepchild. I mean, he wasn't stepchild, but he was a hairy red-head guy. His name means, Esau means red. And it says that when Jacob was born, he was actually holding on to Esau's heel, trying to like escape first. I, I don't know. Jacob's ma- name means deceiver. Jacob is not a morally upstanding person. Neither one of them are. Jacob finds Esau one day. It says that Esau was like a manly man and liked to hunt and fish. So he's my kind of guy. And he comes back in from hunting, and he's literally starving to death. And Jacob has a bowl of soup that he made with his mom when he was watching Food Network and says, I will give you this soup if you will give me your inheritance. And Esau says, I'm about to starve to death. The inheritance won't mean anything anyway. Fine, you can have it. And so Jacob tricks his brother, leverages his brother. I mean, Jack Bowers, his brother, into giving him his birthright. Jacob goes on at the end of his life, or at the end of his father's life, of um, Isaac's life. Isaac is getting old, and he's about to die, and he can't see, and so he has to bless one of his sons. And so Jacob actually goes and cooks a lamb like Esau would have done, and he puts like hairy stuff on his arms and his neck because his dad can't see, and he puts on Esau's jacket so he smells like the woods, and he goes into his dad's tent, and he feeds him this food that, that Esau would have made him. And he lets his dad feel his hairy hands, and he smells his son's cloak, and his, his dad thinks it's Esau. And so Jacob tricks his dad into giving him his birthright. Meanwhile, Esau marries people that he shouldn't marry. He sells his birthright because he doesn't have character. And that's the story of these two people. And in the middle of all that, what God says is, I loved Jacob. That is a really strange answer to how have you loved me? How have you loved me? It goes on through Jacob. Jacob has children. The Israelites go to Egypt. They're held captive there. Moses and Aaron lead them out, right? Like Exodus. Like these are all the same people. And God gives them this incredible system of sacrifices and laws 
And it is the ultimate gift that God could give anyone. Because all these sacrifices are really designed to do a few things. Number one, they're designed to remind these people of their own sinfulness. They actually had to um, take a lamb into the temple and slaughter and kill this thing. Knife, blood, and gore. And it's this very physical reminder that you are sinful, broken people. It was to show them God's forgiveness. One of the cool sacrifices they do, they bring two lambs into the temple. One of them will be sacrificed for their sins And then the other one, the priest would actually say a prayer over this lamb and send it out into the desert. It's called the scapegoat. And for a year, the sins of the people would be gone. He would actually be kind of putting them on that scapegoat and sending them out. And so it was forgiveness. But more importantly, these sacrifices were all designed... And I wish we had time to unpack some of these to show them that there is coming a Messiah through them that is going to change this whole deal. So the lambs had to be perfect, spotless like creatures, and that's representing the perfection of Jesus Christ. They had to be killed, symbolizing the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And this is all pointing to this amazing thing that Jesus Christ is coming. And the entire deal in the Old Testament is pointing to this blessing. It's like, look, Jacob... I gave you the greatest blessing you could have. I gave you the laws, the sacrifices, this whole system, so that you could always be reminded of your sinfulness, of my glory, that you could always see that a Messiah is coming. And you are asking me now, do I really love you? That's the question. And we learn three things about God's love from this. And you might want to write these down. The first thing we learn about how God loves is this, that God loves unconditionally. God loves unconditionally. Jacob did not deserve God's love more than Esau. Jacob's own family was a mess, flawed. Jacob had 12 sons. 11 of them sold the youngest brother into slavery and sent him off to Egypt. I mean, you thought your family was dysfunctional. And one of the greatest threats to our love relationship with God is this. For most of us in this room... Here's, here's the threat. It's that, you know what? We're pretty good moral people who have some level of relationship with God. Maybe we've said a prayer. Maybe we've been baptized. Maybe we come here every Sunday. Maybe we give. Maybe we tithe. Maybe we love other people. Maybe we pray at dinner at home. Maybe it really is a part of our life. But the greatest threat to your love relationship with God being undermined is somewhere along the way you begin to think that you deserve it. Because the reality of it is, we're all just like Jacob and just like Esau, and it's only by God's grace that he loves us. The New Testament version of this verse might look something like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 9, where it says that God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he could show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Why? So that no one can boast. He loves you unconditionally. And if you're like me and you're just good enough to talk yourself into thinking that maybe God owes it to you, just remember that 
He loves unconditionally, without preconditions. You are in no position to earn or warrant God's love. The second thing we learn is that God loves constantly. Um, that verse, chapter two, or chapter one, verse two, where God says, I've loved you. Okay, let's test your English skills here. What tense is that in? I have loved you. Past tense, right? And this is where our English grammar fails us a little bit because if you could read this in Hebrews, this is two words. This is two words that make up this sentence, I've loved you, and they incorporate all the tenses. It's I've loved you in the past, I love you right now, and I will love you in the future. He had given them grace through this crazy system of sacrifices that we're going to see in a minute. They began to see as nothing but a burden. He had, he had been faithful to them. He had helped them rebuild. He loved them in this moment, even when he was chastising them and disciplining them, and he was going to continue to love them. The New Testament version of this verse might be Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, What can separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Even as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We're cursed as sheep to be slaughtered. They feel destitute. In all these things we're overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ in Christ Jesus. You are loved by God. Not because you deserve it, because he loves unconditionally. And even if you can't feel it, you're loved because he loves continually. And then the last thing, which um, I'm not even sure this is a word because it kept spell checking it, but we're going to use it today, is he loves covenantially. He loves covenantially. And the closest thing, idea that we really have to a covenant in our day probably is like a marriage contract, where when you stand at that altar with your husband or your wife and you're saying, I, the promise is, I will love you forever and I'll stay married with you forever. How does it go? Like richer, poorer, better, worse? Like no matter what, I'm with you, I'm with you, right? And now we have failed miserably as a culture in honoring those things. But the Bible says this about God in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He loves unconditionally. It can't be earned. He loves continually. It can't be stopped. And he loves covenantially. He can't deny his own nature. So what does that have to do with living a life of drudgery? For the rest of the book of Malachi, what we see is this, that the love relationship that these people had with God had become broken. And can I just tell you something? This is it. This is the dividing line, the boiling point, the line of debarkation between what we are doing here and every other faith, religion in the world. It is that if, if we do not do this, in the context of a love relationship, it all falls apart. It always has, it always will, and it becomes nothing but religion. And so maybe this is the phrase that we're going to use today, that without a love relationship, faith becomes religion, religion becomes duty, and duty becomes drudgery. And living a life of drudgery is a huge mistake. Faith becomes religion, religion becomes duty, and duty becomes drudgery. Now, Here's the challenge that I felt this week as I've been getting ready for this. 
is that because we're like really good Bible Belt people around here, right? And because there's enough of you that I know that are like me, that you've been around your relationship with Christ for a long enough time to kind of know all the answers. I felt like if I did one of those polls this week that Mike does with like the PowerPoint thing, you know, that if I said, how many of you are living in a love relationship with God? The answer bar would have probably been like 85, 90%. But I also think if I would have said, hey, how many of you feel drudgery when it comes to your faith and your relationship with God? I think the answer bar might have also been like 80 or 90%. And so my fear is that so many of us know how to check the box and nod and say, yeah, God, you love me, I love you, we're good to go, that maybe we need to like have a test and reevaluate it. And that's what God gives these people in the book of Malachi. So let's keep reading. Let's see three tests. And I hope that as you leave here today, you're able to say, yeah, I'm in a love relationship with God that's meaningful and powerful in my life, or maybe I'm just doing religion. And that's not what I want you to do. It's not what God wants you to do. It's not what I want to do in my life. The first test is in our worship and in our service. And um, Mike taught about these verses last week, but I I want you to look in Malachi chapter 1, verse 7. Remember, the sacrificial system, that was a gift, a gift that God gave, a blessing to these people. And now God says this to them, you're presenting defiled food upon my altar. You say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is not to be despised. But you present the blind for sacrifice, is that not evil? And you present the lame and sick, is that not evil? You also say, how tiresome is this? And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. Do you see what has happened here? What has happened is these people took this system that was designed to show God's perfection and glory and grace. And when they tried to do that without a love relationship, it just became a huge pain. And they basically were saying, oh, you know what? Here's my blind cow. Why don't you have that one? Like, oh, hey, look, you know, here's a cow nobody wants. Uh, I'll take that to the temple this week and... Um, It actually says that some of them would actually go and steal cows. Like, hey, uh, there's a lamb over there. Grab that one. Um, There you go. Um, My sacrifice is covered. I went in and I checked the box and I did what I wanted to know in the temple. Because they didn't have a love relationship with God, so they didn't actually care. And they actually said to God this blessing of being able to do this worship and service in the temple. They begin to say, how tiresome is it? And I just wonder if we don't maybe honestly see ourselves a little bit in that verse. And the alarm goes off. I mean, think about what it takes to keep you from coming here. I mean, there's some times when it's like, oh, you know, you're praying at night. Like, man, maybe a kid will cough in the morning so I can skip church and watch the Bronco game on time, you know. um, And I think about the wrangling that has to be done to get me to, like, volunteer for some things. And it's like the pushing, the prodding, the guilting, and I'm just like, oh, got to go help Wade, or got to go do this, and like, how tiresome is all this? And actually, those are spiritual acts of service. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And I wonder if there's not something inside of you that I saw in me this week that is me looking at God and saying, this is kind of tiresome. Without a love relationship, faith becomes religion, Religion becomes duty, duty becomes drudgery, and when our worship and service have become drudgery, 
this is how much God hates it. In chapter 1, he says, you know what I wish you would do? I wish, somebody, I wish somebody would just close the door and you would just stop. Just stop. I hate it so much, just stop. And maybe some of us need to just stop and reevaluate what we're really doing. Second, we've got to move. Now we're going to skip to chapter 2, verse 1, where God continues to explain to them their mistakes. And he says, now, this commandment is for you, priest. If you do not listen and you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have cursed them already because you're not taking it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and then you will be taken away with it. The second area that we see is kind of a test for our love relationship with God is this. God's glory. Do we give God glory in our life? What God wants from your life, what God wants from my life, is for him to be glorified. And that's kind of a weird concept because we don't use that that much outside of here, but basically what it means is he wants your life to make him look like the biggest deal there is because that's what he is. He wants your life to constantly be pointing to him and saying, this is about God. God does it this way. God is ultimate in the universe. And so our lives just reflect that. And I think about the things in my life, and the question that I want to ask you is, how easily do you do that in your life? The things that I find myself glorifying on a daily basis are things like, you know, the SEC is the more superior football conference, fly fishing as the most noble pursuit that you can have in the outdoors, Um, the Denver Broncos, obviously, is the greatest team in the NFL, cast iron skillet as the preferred way for cooking steaks. Homegrown tomatoes, the superiority of old-time donuts over every other donut shop in town. My wife as the most amazing woman that I know, my children as these smart, cute, adorable, perfect little things. By the way, these are no order of importance to me. <laughs> I, I realized about halfway through that I had Rachel last <laughs> behind the donut shop. <laughs> but here's the reality for us. All day long, all the time, we're making something look like a really big deal. And when that's something in our life, when God's glory isn't a continuous and constant theme of the things that we make a big deal, God gets so angry and so jealous. Look at what he says to them um, in chapter 2. This is because I have the maturity of a 12-year-old that this is interesting to me. He says, I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast. And what he's telling the priest is this, because you don't glorify me, what what the priest would normally do is they would, when they sacrificed this animal, they would take the uh, guts, the entrails, if you will, outside the camp and burn them, which would include um, the dung of the animal that was inside the animal. And what God is saying is, I will take that dung of that animal that you normally take outside and I will spread it on your face. And it's just this picture of like, I am so jealous that you make me look like a big deal in your life. And here's the challenge for you. Try to make something look like a big deal that you don't have a love relationship with. It's almost impossible. You cannot make God 
glorified. You can't make him look like a big deal in your life unless you have a love relationship with him that is meaningful and vibrant. So let's say it another way. If God isn't constantly being made a big deal in your life, then that says something. That's a commentary about your love relationship with God. Have you ever sat in a meeting and had to uh, give praise, glory, honor to someone in your office that maybe you don't care for, don't like, your nemesis, your arch rival? And it's almost impossible. I mean, I haven't either. There's some people that are more petty than me that probably have been in that situation, right? And it's so hard to muster up, oh, yeah, good job. When you have this love relationship with people and you care about them, what you want to do is make them look big. Okay, third test. And that is how we relate to God's word. Malachi chapter 2, verse 4. Start in verse 5. My covenant was with him, that's Levi, and it was one of life and peace. Underline those words if you're an underliner. I gave them to him. As an object of reverence, underline those words. So he revered me and he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. And he walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many back from iniquity. He's describing a time before, and it's actually not Levi. He's talking about Aaron who was the head of this tribe of Levi. And he's saying, I gave him my word, and he cherished it, and he loved it, and he revered me, and it was this, this covenant, this promise we had was a source of life and peace. And then he says, verse 7, the lips of the priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he's the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, now he's going to contrast and say, here's what you do with my word. As for you, you've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord. So I've made you despised and abased before all people, just as you were not keeping my ways but are showing partiality in the instruction. God tells them, you don't have a love relationship with me, and because of that, you haven't kept my word the way that Aaron did. It hadn't always been like that. Matter of fact, he talks about some things that we can learn. In, in a love relationship, God's word has incredible power in your life, power to bring life and peace. It has power to lead to reverence and awe. It has a power to help you walk with God. It has a power to actually protect you from sin. Inside of a love relationship, this word means everything to us every day. In the book of Psalms, God says, I have elevated my word even above my name. God loves this book. He loves his words, and he wants them to be a source of life, peace, reverence, and holiness in your life. And when you try to do this, when you have this, Without a love relationship, it, it says that it becomes this. We, turn, we actually try to turn from God's word. We actually use God's word on other people and cause them to stumble and fall. And we twist God's word and, and make it better for ourselves. We corrupt it is what he tells them at the end of, the, of those verses. We turn from God's word in that when you don't have a love relationship, 
and you read the Ten Commandments, your first response to those isn't, this is how God wants me to live and that I should live and believe that there's a blessing in living that way. We read it and we think, I, I wonder how I can get around this one or what does this really mean? And, and we excuse it and we explain it away and we try to, to run and we actually turn from his word. And eventually it just sits on the shelf collecting dust. Or we use it on other people, and this is something that um, those of us who maybe grew up in church are, are prone to do, to know just enough of this in our head and have no connection to it in our heart, that we, we know enough of this to judge the political views and the moral views and the choices of the people around us, but we never let it actually cut open our own heart and reveal to us who we really are. And, and then maybe we even twist it up for our own purposes and to help justify certain actions and things and, and, and the way that we want to live. And we, we, we're just spiritual enough to know how to turn this into a tool for doing all of that. And that's not what it was supposed to be. He wants it to be life, peace, to make us stand in awe of him and to help protect us and to walk in truth with him. So I want to ask you something. How's your relationship with God's word today? Is it drudgery? Because when you try to enter into God's word, void of a relationship, it becomes religion, religion becomes duty, and duty becomes drudgery. And if this thing sits on your floorboard of your car or the side of your nightstand, like it does in my life way too many times, it says something about do I really... Am I really in a love relationship with God? I want to read a, end with a, a word from Jeremiah about God's word. Um, and this has been a really convicting part of this talk for me this week is in preparing this and seeing so much things in my own life. But look at Jeremiah's attitude towards God's word. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I've been called by your name, O Lord of hosts. That's something, that's someone who's in a love relationship with God, isn't it? When you say that, you don't just love God's word, you love God. Without a love relationship, faith becomes religion, religion becomes duty, and duty becomes drudgery. And when God's word becomes drudgery, when we try to dodge it, when we try to twist it, when we try to abuse it, We're missing the point because what God really wants is for this word to become the joy and the delight of our heart. So what about you? What is your worship and service, your attitude towards worship and service, your attitude towards God's glory, your attitude towards God's word? What does that say about your love relationship with God? Check out this quote from John Piper as we go into a, a time to kind of respond. John Piper says, what is sin? It's the glory of God not honored. It's the holiness of God not re reverenced. It's the greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The greatness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized. Sin is the person of God not loved. That's what sin is. And maybe in these next few minutes, you're like me, 
just need to say, yeah, God, that's sin, and that's in my life. And just ask him to draw you back close into a love relationship with him. Let's pray together. Father, that is sin. At the end of the day, not loving you is sin. And it leads to our faith becoming nothing but religion and work and duty and drudgery. And God, I pray that none of us would continue to live that way. It it doesn't honor you. It doesn't fulfill us. And so in these moments, God, I, I ask that you would just speak to each of us individually and show us where and how we need to enter back into a love relationship with you.